This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back once again, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here with another little-known golden nugget from the annals of modern Chinese history. Thanks to Lee, by the way, for pointing me in the direction of this topic. I was going to do an episode on the Chinese anarchist Liu Shifu, but decided, well, why not cover the whole broader subject of these groups of intellectuals from the final years of the Qing dynasty and their exploration of anarchism as a possible solution to China's ills during the time they were active in the movement, which was just prior to the fall of the Qing and the first years of the Republic. Our story today involves about a dozen names, and I'm guessing other than perhaps Tai Yuanpei, not many of them are instantly recognizable. Like so much of the history that happened in the modern era, our story had its beginnings in the painful aftermath of the First Sino-Japanese War. 1895 was a year of more national humiliation in China after Li Hongzhang inked his name to the Treaty of Shimonoseki. The ruling class, the intellectuals, those engaged in commerce, they had eaten so many slices of humble pie since 1842. But this defeat at the hands of the Japanese military was especially painful. Throughout Chinese imperial history, Japan had always been the little brother to China. Now it was China, bowing and scraping in front of Japan. With this proverbial final straw, now more than ever, those whose passions were stirred and who wanted to do something to rejuvenate the country, began taking off in droves to study in Japan, Europe, the U.S., and elsewhere, and seek out solutions and new ideas. Following the debacle of the Boxer Rebellion in 1900 and the new realities that came in its wake, even more students sailed to these places to study and learn what they had been missing out on. At the turn of the century... All these intellectuals, scholars, students, they did what their most ancient ancestors did back in the Zhou dynasty. With the Huaxia Chinese nation at a crossroads back then, people educated themselves, and those who could, like Confucius and Mengzi, traveled the central plain and debated which path was the best way forward. Now, 23 centuries later, this central issue was being debated again. It was clear to everyone who was even ill-informed. The Manchu-Qing government it wasn't long for this world. During the Zhou, people traveled around the Central Plain. Now in modern times, all manners of patriots, politicians, and students took to the seas and explored ideas from other lands, frantically considering all options that might remedy China's plight and see what possible pearls of wisdom they might offer about where... Should China go from here? The word for anarchy in Chinese is wu zhang fu zhu yi. That means the idea or ism of wu zheng fu, no government. That's the inner essence of anarchism. 
Our story begins with this group of Chinese intellectuals, all from upstanding families, a few quite well-to-do, who found themselves in Tokyo and Paris between 1907 and the years immediately following the Xinhai Revolution when the Qing Dynasty fell, 1911. These people were all born in the 1880s. They're of the same generation. Following the Boxer Rebellion, they were old and wise enough to be fully cognizant to what was happening in China. The major issue of that time boiled down to two points of view. One was how to reform the dynasty and revive China. Or the other option, how to get rid of the dynasty altogether, and if so, replace it with what? Anarchism offers a simple and easy solution. You don't replace it with anything. By tearing down a government and replacing it with a new one, all you're doing is replacing one despot with another. In the end, you'll have changed nothing. An awareness about anarchism in China came right after the Boxer Rebellion. That's when anarchist writings began showing up on the radar of intellectual circles. And for the next dozen or more years, translators were kept busy bringing all the latest political theories and ideas from all the great anarchist thinkers in the West to China. All the great works, all the journals, everything was translated. Sounds like not such a big deal, but it drove the whole movement, having all the latest ideas freely available to consider at this most fertile period of anarchism in history. And all these translations were the conduit that brought these new ideas to China. And in each case, we'll see, a group will emerge who organized all the writings from the top anarchists, arranged for everything to be printed and distributed to the masses in the forms of pamphlets or journals. And these early Chinese anarchists themselves, in the tradition of many great scholars going back to the Han Dynasty, would write their commentaries on these writings from the most important and influential European and Russian anarchists and explain them and point out how these ideas apply to China's case. And this was how they got the word out. No social media or mass communication. They had to print these pamphlets, books, transcripts of speeches and articles and get them out to the Chinese laborers in the big cities, either openly or surreptitiously, whenever it was necessary, which was most of the time. Those who are familiar with European anarchism know of Peter Kropotkin and Mikhail Bakunin. Their writings, more than any others in Europe, helped shape the thinking of China's anarchists. There were others who were important, but these two spoke to China's anarchists in particular. In this episode, I just want to mention three groups of Chinese anarchists. One resided in Paris, one in Tokyo, and the third one was the only China homegrown anarchist group based in Guangzhou. We'll look at each of the three groups and their contributions, and in so doing, you can get a pretty good handle on what was going on and why this mattered. You know, back then, early 20th century, the word anarchism you know, wasn't such a dog whistle like it is today. Ever since I was growing up, at least, the word anarchy it conjured up visions of violence, rebellion, assassinations, and Molotov cocktails, and overthrowing the authorities. And it was laced with rioting and murder right on the streets, panic in society. <laughs> Good old patriotic education. They got me. Well, back in the time of these Chinese anarchists who, mind you, were all in their 20s, 
Given the times they lived in and what they knew about their own country's history, anarchism was something that was much more benign and certainly worth exploring. The writings of Kropotkin, they really spoke to the Chinese anarchists more than any other, and his beliefs resonated more than any others when viewed through the lens of the experience of the Chinese masses. Kropotkin was against all forms of tyranny. Any government that had to rule through coercion was no government at all. He advocated for individual freedoms, no limits to that. And social institutions, yeah, get rid of them as well. He was anti-religion, pro-labor unions, pro-women's equality, anti-private property. He abhorred violence and militarism in all its forms. He gave the thumbs down to constitutionalism, republicanism, and Confucianism too. And utterly rejected Bolshevism when that first started showing up around 1903. Kropotkin was extremely critical of the hypocrisies and double standards of governments. His main contention was that no matter who the ruler was and what form of government existed, it would ultimately end up oppressing the people. He was very convincing in his arguments, and considering those times, late 19th, early 20th centuries, it struck a chord with a lot of people. You can imagine what a potential threat this kind of thinking was to elites, established political regimes, especially the ones that, you know, relied on coercion a lot. Kropotkin believed the way that the working person could get a fair shake would be to control both the labor supply and means of distribution. Only then could they stand on equal ground with the capitalist class. One of the hallmarks of Kropotkin's ideology was the notion of mental and manual labor and the combination of agriculture and industry. Those who engaged in jobs that didn't involve manual labor were still productive and integral to society. There was none of this hey wu lei or five black classes. Intellectuals were just as welcome as bricklayers. Kropotkin's idea about the combination of agriculture and industry, making everything local, brings to mind Mao's great leap forward. But in anarchism, there would be no Chairman Mao and no Chinese Communist Party. But the basic idea about self-sufficiency would remain. Kropotkin knew this was the best way to keep the urban and rural areas on equal footing and prevent the non-urban parts of the land from getting marginalized, like it was in every other country. Kropotkin's two most famous works that defined his theories about anarchy and which were most embraced by China's anarchists were An Appeal to the Young and Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. Let's look at the Tokyo group of anarchists first. Most Chinese students, pre- and post-Boxer Rebellion, tended to go to Japan to study rather than Europe. This was for the simple reasons that Japan was closer, it was much lower cost, and the culture there was more familiar to a Chinese than what they'd experience in Europe. One guy kind of started it all. This was Zhang Ji, who went to Japan in 1899, 17 years old. And right away, he got to participate in all these student discussion groups and get in on all manners of anti-Manchu talk that was all the fashion. And through attending these salons or cafes, Zhang Ji was exposed to all kinds of new and foreign ideas, including Peter Kropotkin and Japan's most famous anarchist, Kotoko Shisui. This period in China, 
in between the two Sino-Japanese Wars, 1895 to 1937. It was quite a productive period with respect to literature and political philosophy. A lot of intellectuals and working people found merit in these newly introduced works from the European, Russian, and Japanese theorists of all kinds of political ideologies, including anarchism. Zhang Ji wrote an important piece in 1904 called Anarchism and the Spirit of Anarchists. This was written in Chinese, so the people there got to read it straight from the tap and not in translation. And it was written from the perspective of China's experience and why anarchism could work. But Zhang Ji wasn't really the main guy in this Tokyo group. He and another important figure from this time, Zhang Binglin, were instrumental in bringing a well-known scholar and theoretician to Tokyo named Liu Shipei. Like a lot of intellectual writers of the time, Liu ended up getting chased out of China by the Qing authorities. And together with his wife, He Zhen, these two made up the core of Chinese anarchists who based themselves in Tokyo during this formative time. From the moment they arrived in 1907, they became important figures in what was called the Tokyo Group. And like all these anarchists did very early in the game, Liu and He joined up with Sun Yat-sen's Tong Meng Hui. These two, Liu Shipei and He Zhen, they didn't stay long in Japan. Their story is mainly told between 1907 and 1908. This husband and wife team were the first ones to scale up the dissemination of information about anarchism and get it into the hands of the workers and the disaffected. And it wasn't enough simply to introduce what anarchism was. It also had to be communicated in a way that clearly showed how anarchism fit into the overall fin de siècle China picture. And even more daunting, how it could be implemented. They were also one of the first to beat that anti-Confucian drum in what they put out there, condemning the great sage's hold on society. In more than a few places, Confucius came in for a drubbing at such a desperate hour when so many intellectuals and leaders were wondering where did they go wrong and why did the country fall this far. Let's talk about He Jun for a second. Liang Qichao, among modern historical figures, was one of the first men to openly advocate for women's liberation in modern China. But as for women, who had a lot more skin in the game, so to speak, one of the earliest and most influential figures of this time was He Zhen. In the early years of the feminist movement in the 20th century in China, she was one of the pioneers. Her road to anarchy came via her work as a feminist. Together with her husband, Liu Shipei, they founded the Society for the Study of Socialism. This was in 1907. Fourteen years yet to go before the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And their journal was called Natural Justice, Tian Yi Bao. He Zhen was the most outspoken voice of her day. And like all these early feminists, no effort was spared by the establishment to push back against her ideas. She had studied at the women's school in Shanghai, set up by Tsai Yuanpei. She also founded the Society for the Restoration of Women's Rights. She wrote a particularly well-received essay in 1907 where she meticulously and persuasively laid out the whole case for women's rights in China's traditional society. And she showed how China's political and moral institutions systemically 
since at least the Han Dynasty, kept women in their Confucian place and denied them basic rights and equal access to opportunities. Her name was He Zhen, but in her writing she always went by the byline He Yin Zhen to show her respect for her mother, whose surname was Yin. All of her writings, as well as Liu Shi Pei's, were published in this important anarchist journal, Natural Justice, and it ran till the Japanese authorities shut it down. <laughs> A common fate for these uh, radical publications. But this was her main vehicle to try and advance women's rights and equality. And the anarchism that Liu Shipei and He Jun espoused placed equality above all else. In their vision, all people were equal. They both advocated for a women's revolution. They also believed that in a perfect world, there would be no borders, no rulers oppressing the ruled, and both of them were totally fine with the use of violence against authoritarian regimes if the times called for it. The Paris and Tokyo groups were in complete lockstep on the notion that you had to have social revolution first in order to affect any change. If political changes are made at the top, no matter how well-intentioned, if you leave the bottom alone in its oppressed and depressed state, the revolution is meaningless. Mao also took this idea to heart when he launched the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution. I don't know about you, but it all sounds very altruistic to me and easy to talk about, but hard, if not impossible, to roll out uh, something like this across society. But the Tokyo group especially, they said education was the key to everything. The more education you provided to people, the faster they would come around. And they believed this is what would create a harmonious society. The people just had to open their eyes and see. And providing basic education to the masses was the key. And during this period of momentous changes following the Boxer Rebellion, no one carried more water for the Chinese working class when it came to education than these early anarchists. They all believed without this essential element, anarchism would be nothing but a pipe dream. And one of their chief inspirations for this perfect world was the great Russian author Leo Tolstoy. His writings about agrarian utopianism, to this Tokyo group, Liu Shipei, He Zhen, and others too, these ideas resonated very strongly. They understood how this could possibly work in such an overwhelmingly agrarian society as China. And so, by that token, the anarchists of the Tokyo group were convinced China was already locked and loaded and ready to transform into this agrarian utopian world that Tolstoy wrote about so convincingly. Liu Shipei in particular would write about the times of Laozi and Zhuangzi and point out how these two traditional founders of Taoism both held governments in contempt and saw them as the root of all evil. They called for a life that was close to nature, and went along with nature's ways, devoid of artificiality, complete freedom, living one's life in accordance with the Tao. In fact, Liu Shipei called Laozi and Zhuangzi the first anarchists. Laozi never came out and said, get rid of governments. He just proposed they stay in the background and govern by not governing, using the powers of Wu Wei. Liu Shipei pointed out that when you look at China's case, for the peasants anyway, it was always 
Tian Gao Huang Di Yuan. Heaven is high and the emperor is far away. The peasants, they were always on their own. What did matters discussed in the capital, even the provincial capital, have to do with their daily rhythm of life? So in Liu Shipei's eyes, for China, this was a huge advantage as far as transitioning to anarchism. As far as the Chinese peasantry was concerned, they were almost already there. So the Tokyo group, along with their comrades in Paris, they drew some inspiration from the Chinese ancients. Liu Shipei had said that the early Zhou dynasty, that was the best time in China right up until the time that the economy started to become commercialized. And this then destroyed the peacefulness and tranquility that the people enjoyed. Nonetheless, Liu Shipei and He Zhen, in their writings, remained most critical of China's old traditions. And come the new culture movement, these two will be studied quite closely. In fact, the important thing to know about all these Chinese anarchists, again, is that a lot of the ideas and issues being debated into the 1920s came out of this primordial soup that was being mixed up by these early anarchists years before the May 4th movement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me cut this short with Liu Shipei and He Zhen. For reasons of their own, they ended up taking employment with the Qing official Duanfang, and it was learned that these two leaders of the Tokyo group of Chinese anarchists had ratted their comrades out. So as I said, they didn't stay long. End of 1908, they were already being marginalized after all they had done. And once these two left the scene, it pretty much brought an end to that fertile period of anarchism among Chinese students and intellectuals in Tokyo. There was a whole other thing going on in Paris. The scene there began around the same time that Liu Shipei and He Jun started in Tokyo. It was around 1907. Where student radicalism was concerned, the Rive Gauche in Paris was the center of the universe back then. This group in Paris, they were a bigger and more renowned group. They were led by Li Shizhong, a man with quite a story. His father was a major government official in the late Qing. I guess you could say the most glaring difference between the Paris and Tokyo groups was that the Europeans tended to reject outright all of the old traditional Chinese culture, even the Taoist principles that Liu Shipei pointed to. The European group tended to just reject anything that smacked of superstition and old habits that were out of step with the new society. And once again, Confucius was not looked on very kindly. This rejection of old ways was reminiscent of June 1966 in Mao Zedong, the Four Olds campaign, getting rid of old ideas, culture, customs, and habits. Here you can see another early example of 1900s pre-CCP era ideas that Chairman Mao later on would try on for size. 
Anyway, for the Paris group, it went back as far as 1901, when Li Shi met Zhang Renjie, also known as Zhang Jingjiang. I'll refer to him as Renjie. He came from a well-to-do family, and throughout the period that the Paris group was most active, he bankrolled things for them. These two, Li Shizheng and Zhang Renjie, they shared similar ideas about what they believed to be the most correct path that China needed to take. And they ended up in Paris together as officials from the Qing government. And that's what initially brought them there. But that didn't last long, and both Li Shizheng and Zhang Renjie, especially after becoming acquainted with the writings of Elisee Reclus, gravitated to anarchism and found it to be the most suitable route for China. The third person who was part of this group, the much older Wu Zhihui, he was someone who also came from a prominent family and had already made a name for himself in the whole intellectual scene in Shanghai at the turn of the century. Like so many young students of those times, his anti-Qing writings cut a little too close to the bone and he had to flee China. And he ended up in Paris and formed part of the core of these Chinese intellectuals who were exploring anarchism. Wu Zhihui was quite friendly with Tsai Yuanpei, a major figure in the field of education. Tsai also spent some time with this group in Paris, and collectively this group put out a lot of material, including translations of the major works and current essays from European anarchists. Later on, Tsai Yuanpei will return to China and famously serve as president of Peking University at a very influential period in Chinese history. Both Li Dazhao and Chen Duxiu got their start under Tsai Yuanpei. And I guess you could say those two ended up having a pretty sizable impact on the course of modern Chinese history. Tsai Yuanpei also worked with Li Shizheng on one other endeavor. This was the work-study movement. I'm sure that term rings a bell with more than a few of you. Later on, a bunch of young Chinese students signed up for this program and ended up in France together. Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, Nie Rongzhen, Chen Yi, Li Fuchun, to name a few. Tsai Yuanpei and the other members of the Paris group formed this Shi Jie Shi, or World Society. This became the main vehicle for the group's output of essays and articles. Zhang Renjie, he knew Sun Yat-sen and had been an early donor to Sun's revolutionary endeavors. And he introduced him to the group in Paris, despite the obvious contradiction of an anarchist joining a political party, all of them became members of the Tongmeng Hui. That seems strange. Why would any proponent of anarchism back a political party? Well, you know, Sun had done some horse trading with them and they shared common ground with respect to the necessity of social revolution. And they were all counting on Sun to pull through for the working class with respect to all these educational reforms they espoused. Plus, Sun had strong personal relationships with Wu Zhihui and Zhang Renjie. The main journal that printed the writings of the Paris group was called New Century, Xin Shiji. Like the Tokyo group, these anarchists said change came from the bottom up. Any movement that ignored the lower classes was no movement at all. It was just a power grab. The Paris group were on board with all the classic ideals that Europe's anarchists called for, abolishing laws, eliminating all traces of classes in society, no authorities in charge telling people what to do or how to act. They also called for an abolition of private property, 
They looked at their Tokyo comrades as a little too soft. They both wrote with equal passion about humanitarianism, freedom, equality. The European anarchists sought to achieve their aims through popular resistance that used nonviolent means of protesting. Propaganda was a necessary evil, as was assassination when the situation called for it. The Paris group believed that in a perfect world, in order to bring about a transformation of society, one that embraced anarchism, a revolution would need to break out that would be global in scale, all happening at once. And because it was decentralized, there was no one single leader or rebel group to go after to stamp it out. They saw China as a society that was already organized and could easily form village and township militias that could defend against invaders. And these organized mini-societies would also make a success of Kropotkin's ideas of combining agriculture and industry. They were very fond of this notion of spontaneous revolution, every dictator's worst nightmare, and paramount Above all else, an anarchist didn't offer any wiggle room on this. There could be no one single central authority in charge. That's why it's called Wu Zhengfu Zhuyi, the ideology of no government. Like the Tokyo group, those in Paris too were equally on board with the idea of educating the masses and diminishing the ignorance that plagued the workers in the cities and peasants in the countryside. The more informed the people were, the more they would gladly embrace anarchism. Compared to what the Chinese peasantry had endured all these centuries, how could they not? The idea was to educate the people so that they could think for themselves and not have to rely on a government to tell them what was right or wrong. Again, they all insisted without the educational aspect, there could be no anarchism. So between the Society for the Study of Socialism in Tokyo and the World Society in Paris, they got the word out to all their compatriots back in the homeland. And in Paris, as I just mentioned, their platform was the New Century Journal. Now, in order to walk the walk as well as talk the talk, Li Shizhong set up a factory in the northwest suburbs of Paris in La Garonne Calombes that made soy products. Stuff like tofu, or la fromage chinoise, as the French back then called it, Chinese cheese. And he worked with his counterparts in China to bring these young Chinese over, and they'd be given a job at the factory and attend classes and learn all about anarchism, of course, and Europe's modern ways and how some of them might be applied to China's case. And after seeing and experiencing this secular French society, these young Chinese would take it all back to the motherland. And like I said, Deng Xiaoping worked at that factory. And all the young men who went through this program were fully indoctrinated in anarchist theory and taught all about the work of Kropotkin, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, and others. And the idea was that they take all these teachings and ideas and spread the word back in China and get more people to consider this option for the country. The missionaries had the same idea with respect to their aspirations for the spread of Christianity in China. Zhang Ji, who had brought Liu Shipei and He Jun to Tokyo and introduced them to anarchism, he ended up in Paris from 1908 to 1911, and he too became a regular fixture in the Paris group. 
Among other things, Zhang Ji is remembered as one of the early reformers who was adamant that in China's case, you had to make the peasantry central to any revolution. Again, you can see these anarchists, they were the OGs when it came to all these big ideas that were central to socialism and communism. In the Mao era, you can see which ideas from these anarchists that he cherry-picked for you know, their potential usefulness, and not just with Mao. Other, more mainstream radical ideologies borrowed from these anarchists as well. Now, these Paris anarchists were staunch anti-communists. They had a few things they agreed on, the egalitarian part, but the Leninist aspect of communism was a difficult pill for any anarchist to swallow because of that whole dictator thing. Ironically, these Paris anarchists ended up becoming staunch supporters of the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek. In fact, the most prominent members of the Paris group, Li Shizheng, Wu Zhihui, Zhang Renjie, and Cai Yuanpei, were later memorialized as the four elders of the KMT. By the way, Wu Zhihui was a major figure from not only this time, but also for his contribution to the intellectual milieu after May 4, 1919. Wu Zhihui was involved in a whole number of things. He once famously said that, quote, although the theories of Kropotkin and Bakunin are good, I'm afraid it would take 3,000 years to put them into practice in China, end quote. I've introduced the Tokyo and Paris groups of Chinese anarchists to you. They were part of that first wave to leave China and study and learn overseas, write all about what they found out for their readers back in China, and explain all these political theories of the West. And they did this at a time when a lot of people in China were asking, where does the country go from here? Let's look at one more person, because he was the generation who read all the works of Liu Shipei, He Chen, Li Shizheng, Wu Zhihui, and all these other radical intellectuals. This was Liu Shifu. He went by a number of different names. He was also known as Liu Sifu. He differed from those of the Tokyo and Paris groups in that Liu Shifu was a homegrown anarchist. He had come from a good family, too, just like the others, and spent time overseas. He originally came from Xiangshan, outside of Zhongshan, west of the Pearl River Delta in Guangdong province. He was anti-Qing before he was an anarchist. And in one of the defining moments in Liu Shifu's life, May 1907, he attempted to assassinate the Qing naval commandant, Li Jun. Liu Shifu was committed to doing whatever was necessary to rid China of the Manchu Qing rulers. And when he committed this attempted assassination, he wasn't an anarchist yet. That came later. He was targeting Li Jun because... He was the one in charge of the Qing forces that had time and again suppressed all these anti-Qing uprisings in the south of China, in Guangdong province. So Liu Shifu, seeing Li Jun as the main impediment to the success of the revolutionaries, took it upon himself to rub this guy out. Only he failed to do so. While he was assembling bombs the night before in his hotel room, near where Li Jun's vehicle would pass, one of them blew off and Liu Shifu suffered tremendous injuries, but he survived. The police came and took him to the hospital and he had his left arm amputated below the elbow. As soon as he recovered, 
He was thrown in prison where his transformation took place. He had access to all these copies of Xin Shirchi, New Century, Natural Justice, and other anarchist journals and writings. And he read them all. All these new ideas, he discovered them all during the period of his incarceration. And he saw the light. These anarchists really spoke to him. Thanks to his parents' connections, Liu Shifu managed to get released from the slammer in only a couple of years. So he got out in late 1909 his head full of ideas. Liu Shifu then made his way to Hong Kong, and the following year in 1910, he joined up with the new China or Chinese Assassination Corps, the Jirna Anshatuan. When Liu joined up with this group, he already had a few assassinations under his belt. Liu, like all these Chinese who had spent time in Japan, had joined up with the Tongmenghui very early. All those members of the Assassination Corps, they were all Tongmenghui. They engaged in bumping off various Qing officials whenever possible. Another attempt had been made on Li Jun's life on August 13, 1911, but he survived that one too, though he did suffer injuries from the bomb that was thrown at his sedan chair. And soon after that, the Wuchang Uprising took place. And it was around that time Liu Shifu set up his own society, just as his comrades in Japan and Europe had done. And he called his group, based in Guangzhou, the Hui Mingxue She, the Cock Crowing Society, though it went by other English names as well. And like his other comrades in anarchy, Liu Shifu also printed a journal called The People's Voice, the Minsheng. This was the first significant anarchist organization in China. They targeted mostly South and Central China, where they tried to set up cells everywhere. Liu Shifu introduced what was known as anarcho-communism. You can call this the purest form of socialism. No Chinese characteristics, no modifications or add-ons, no Bolshevism, which was viewed as just a new kind of despotism. This was the total package. In 1913, Liu Shifu was up to his eyeballs in organizing workers in Guangzhou, and I want to reiterate, he was doing this long before any other group came up with this idea. He helped set up trade unions and fought to give the working class a fairer shake. And in this year, he also set up the Conscience Society. The rules were simple and straightforward. No meat, no booze, no smoking ciggies. No keeping servants, members were prohibited from riding in rickshaws or sedan chairs, no marrying, no family names, no serving as an official in any government, no serving in the parliament, no joining political parties, no joining the military, no practicing religion. Well, 1913, 1914, 1915 were all very challenging years for anyone or any groups lined up against Yuan Shikai. After the failure of the so-called Second Revolution, organized by Sun Yat-sen in the south of China, the big, meaty fist of the Beiyang clique came down hard on Liu Shifu and others calling for Yuan's overthrow. The voice of the people was shuttered, and Liu Shifu moved to Macau to continue printing operations. But the Portuguese government there didn't want any trouble, and they shut Liu Shifu down as well. So in April 1914, he sailed north to Shanghai to continue his work, 
and keep getting the word out to the masses through the people's voice. He also set up another organization called the Society of Anarcho-Communist Comrades, Wu Zhengfu Gongchan Chu Yi Hong Zhe Some have said Liu Shifu was the first, or one of the first, to use this term Gongchan Chu Yi as the Chinese word for communism. In his manifesto, Liu Shifu wrote, quote, What is anarcho-communism? It means the elimination of the capitalist system and its reconstruction as a common property society in which both governments and rulers shall be superfluous. To put it plainly, it is to advocate absolute freedom in economic and political life. End quote. In his final years, Liu Shifu wrote more and more about the merits of syndicalism which is defined as a form of trade unionism, originated in France that aims to control the means of production and distribution. Through the control of these two levers came ultimate control of society by federated bodies of industrial workers. They sought to realize their aims through general strikes, terrorism, sabotage, and other non-peaceful means. Though Liu, after having turned his back on the China Assassination Corps, advocated mainly for non-violent means of achieving the group's ends. So his anarchism went from destructive to constructive. By 1915, Liu Shifu was the most important voice in China, calling for the political philosophy of anarchism. But the movement took a massive hit when on March 27, 1915, Liu died during lung surgery in Shanghai to treat his tuberculosis. He managed to pack a lot of life into his only 31 years. He was buried in Hangzhou, not far from West Lake, in what's today the Xihu Scenic Area. And this wasn't the end of anarchism on the Chinese mainland, but suffice to say, the movement took a huge hit losing its spiritual leader, so to speak. So between the passing of Liu Shifu and the heavy-handedness of the warlord era, it became harder and harder to get the word out. So with the repression going on, anarchism in China had to operate in the shadows and carry on its work underground. They were very active throughout the May 4th movement, and though they may have found themselves operating on the fringe, they were still around. And then after July 1921, with the establishment of the Communist Party in China, anarchism faded from the scene, and as we get closer to 1927, everyone started taking sides, and everything coalesced around either the KMT or the CCP. The anarchists got squeezed out. The Paris group of anarchists all got folded in with the KMT. And with the establishment of the CCP, a lot of their earliest recruits came from the ranks of these early anarchists. But the two could never reconcile, because anarchists, besides rejecting the political ruthlessness of the communists, they never liked Marx. So this wasn't a marriage that was made to last. And besides, the anarchists couldn't compete with the communists who were so fast on their feet and organized to a degree that made them a tough opponent. But as I said, and this is one of the main takeaways here, the anarchists had their few years of relative prominence on the intellectual scene that debated China's future so hotly and eloquently. They never made it to the mainstream, but a lot of things that they were the first to advocate for, 
were selected by the communists as part of the party's orthodoxy, at least in the 1950s and 60s. The anarchist's belief and trust in a human being's innate goodness, as Mengzi said all people were, made them easy meat for the communists who knew what Xunzi and Shangyang and Hanfei knew, that people, they ain't no good, and you needed a tough ruler to keep them in line, and the communists in no way were going to allow themselves to get tripped up by any of the idealism of the anarchists. But for a while, because of the times in China, as the sands of time slipped through the hourglass of the Qing dynasty, there were many writings that came out of these anarchist journals, like Natural Justice, New Century, and The Voice of the People, that resonated very strongly with certain swaths of young people and reform-minded Chinese who were fed up with the current system and who figured any alternative to what they faced was worth exploring. Sorry I didn't get to Wang Jingwei and Chu Yi. There were so many other important names from this golden age of Chinese anarchists. My apologies if any of your favorites didn't get mentioned. But do let me mention uh, one last thing here. These Chinese anarchists, especially Li Shizong and Liu Shifu, they were both major proponents of the artificial language Esperanto. The Paris group and Liu Shifu in Guangzhou, they both saw this as the perfect world language. Liu Shifu even taught this language to his students, and they all had very high hopes of implementing this change in society. Needless to say, it didn't catch fire in China. Okay, we're running way long here. I might have to consider uh, inserting an extra couple mid-roll ads into this uh, episode, which is a perfect segue to cordially invite you to explore the ad-free living that all my subscribers to Patreon and CHP Premium enjoy every day of their lives. They get all the CHP content unsullied by ads and go to bed each night knowing with their generous subscription, they're helping me to keep this long-running family program going just a little bit longer. No pressure, just saying. Okay, good people of this world, Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from the sunny skies of Southern California. If I don't see you in one week for a new Chinese Sayings podcast episode, then I'll see you the week after that for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. <laughs>